Bill Hare is a physicist and climate scientist with 30 years of experience in science, impacts and policy responses to climate change and stratospheric ozone depletion. He's a founder and CEO of Climate Analytics, which was established to synthesize and advance scientific knowledge on climate change and provide state-of-the-art solutions to global and national climate change policy challenges. He was a lead author on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Fourth Assessment Report, for which the IPCC was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007. Hare has contributed actively to the development of the international climate regime since 1989, including the negotiation of the 1992 UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, the 1997 Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement in 2015. Bill Hare, Climate Analytics, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Thank you. What led you to found Climate Analytics? We started it to try and make a difference, particularly focused very much on what were acceptable levels of warming, to look at the, all the scientific issues around what were acceptable levels of warming and how would that guide policy. Tell us about your journey as a physicist and climate scientist. Well, I guess I got involved with climate change first, actually, through my undergrad work at Murdoch University and learned about the new problem of climate change. This is in the late 1970s, early 1980s, and became increasingly concerned about that problem. But I was also very much engaged with environmental issues generally, including biodiversity, forest protection, and so on. And then those concerns came together in the middle 1980s when I prepared a paper for a conference organized by the CSIRO in Melbourne, the Australia's scientific body, when I looked at impacts in Australia. And then it became clear, even from the literature then, that there were going to be some serious issues. That led me to look at the whole problem again of what was climate change, how fast would it happen, what were other older scientists thinking about it, and I realised that there already was a lot going on at that time. The International Council of Scientific Unions had organised a process on this, there was a conference in Villach in the mid-80s in Austria, and so quite a lot was happening. So I, I picked up the issues there and began to work on the idea of the need for a global agreement on climate change. So by the end of the 80s, early 90s, I think there was pretty much a consensus that the only way to deal with this problem was by developing a global agreement. So that's how I started. And I was very much motivated also in those years, particularly in the 90s and 2000s, to look at how to help the small island states and least developed countries protect themselves from what looked like being a really serious problem for them, climate change. And of course, I was at that moment in history in the middle 1990s and so on. I was very much engaged with Greenpeace International, coordinating their work on uh, climate change and international negotiating and science assessments based with the IPCC. And then I joined the uh, Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, which was led by John Schonhuber, a famous scientist and physicist in, in the climate area. And he, he encouraged me to go to the Potsdam Institute and follow my scientific interests, which I did for some time. And then that led subsequently to the idea of setting up climate analytics with two other colleagues who were very much engaged with climate science and policy at that time. Associate Professor Malta Meinshausen, who's now heading the 
Climate and Energy College, University of Melbourne, and Nikhil Schiefer, who is one of the co-founders of Climate Analytics. The tools. I want to go into the Climate Action Tracker. It's really put so much clarity because you've been in these rooms, you've been at the table, as you say, you've been authoring, you and Climate Analytics, then authoring papers for the IPCC, but there's a lot of mystery for the, the average person to understand. So if anyone has not discovered the Climate Action Tracker yet, go visit that. It gives real detail to help to see where we are, where we need to be. Ozone was an issue at like near the beginning of ozone depletion. Yeah. We haven't achieved so much in terms of we're only now getting to certain targets. But the ozone is something we can say we can point to that as a kind of success. <laughs> but as you say, we're only now getting to some of these targets. There's this huge, as you identify, there's this huge commitment gap what mm-hmm. the country, our countries are saying they're going to do and what they're actually doing in terms of policy. Yeah, look, on the climate action tracker, you said, look, people are mystified by what's going on. And actually, that's what led some of us to think about starting the climate action tracker. We were listening to countries at a meeting in Bangkok, trying to explain what they were doing and trying to understand what was really going on and get a hold of the numbers and work out what the US saying correct. Was it happening? Were other countries doing anything really? So with Nicholas Herner, who's now one of the founders of the New Climate Institute and Mikhail Schiefer from Climate Analytics, we came up with the idea of, of building the climate action tracker to demystify partly for ourselves, but then more importantly for the rest of the world, what countries were really doing. So it's no surprise that people are mystified by it. I hope the Climate Action Tracker helps people unpack that. It's a complicated space, so it's not always easy to decode what's going on. And I hope the Climate Action Tracker strikes the right balance. Going back to the stratospheric ozone depletion issue, I think that's really an important history people should remember. Because if we hadn't really got on to controlling chlorofluorocarbons and then hydrochlorofluorocarbons, which were then triggering the Antarctic ozone hole and would have triggered much wider levels of ozone depletion in the mid-latitudes of the northern hemisphere and southern hemisphere, then we really would have been in deep trouble. And this was a case where the scientific community really got to work and motivated politicians to really control the chemicals that were causing this. And it wasn't easy. People look back now and talk about it as an inevitability. But I tell you what, nothing felt inevitable about that. If you think back to the Vienna Convention on Ozone Depletion of 1985, there there was a hope to get legally binding commitments from countries didn't work. You think about the Montreal Protocol 1989, which was also meant to completely phase out fluorocarbons. It was a very important step. It was another few years until London in 1990 when actually that happened. Actually, the Montreal Protocol was in 1987. It was in 1990 that we actually got to really crank down uh, and phase out chlorofluorocarbons. And it never really felt certain until that moment. Industry fought tooth and nail and they would have stories in different jurisdictions about how if you phased out chlorofluorocarbons then children would die in schoolyards because asthma inhalers didn't work vegetables would rot in supermarkets there'll be health crises and so on because refrigeration didn't work and so on and so forth so it it wasn't easy and i think we could draw lessons from that obviously the ozone depletion issue was somehow easier to solve than stratospheric ozone depletion was but i think there are very important lessons to learn about political courage, about how you listen to what industry is saying, how you account for that, and how you balance what they're saying against what really needs to be done. And I think that's one of the big issues that slowed down action on climate change. I think governments have been for a very long time 
too much swayed by those who say it's too hard, it'll be too costly, and we don't have the alternatives. Well, right now, we're speaking in 2022, we're in a really great position to crack down on the climate change problem. We've got the solutions are cheaper than ever before, they're easy to roll out, they produce larger economic benefits than ever before, and they provide many opportunities for employment and sustainable society. So that's really a positive thing. On the other hand, we all know that it's not going well. We all know that the situation with emission reductions in many countries is not anywhere near enough. But I, I think people should look at that in a balanced way. So it really makes me ask, is it why, I mean, you're in Australia now, although of course your headquarters, climate analytics has headquarters in Germany and Asia, and you're all over. But in Australia, it must be very disheartening for you, the way the government and the way governments globally do fight this. It's costly to make transition, but it'll be more costly in a decade, in two decades. You're right about the Australian context. I think it's one of the more difficult ones in the whole world. We have a federal government that is really, but all said and done, uh, a climate denialist government. It's constantly putting roadblocks in the way of decarbonisation, trying to stop the exit of coal plant, investing public taxpayers' funds in expanding gas, and also not encouraging or discouraging electric vehicles and so on and so forth. So I think anyone who's been trying to see serious action in Australia at the federal level is entitled to feel somewhat depressed and extremely worried. On the positive side of it, actually, we do see a lot of states moving forward, and, and not just in tokenistic ways. We see a number of the eastern states really moving into world leadership positions on electrification, on renewable energy. So South Australia's often close to 100% renewable, exporting. New South Wales, which is a conservative government and the Australian political spectrum is investing billions in renewable energy zones, all of the transmission systems which are expensive to be set up to bring renewables to the market and other states are moving there as well. So it, it is pretty tough going. And the other thing that really worries me down here, particularly sitting in Western Australia, where I grew up, is that we are seeing a really rapid onset of climate impacts. I, I would say that outside of the high Arctic, the kind of changes happening here on the land and on the oceans offshore here are more rapid and more extensive than I know anywhere else in the world. This really is a serious problem. And so the things that people have an image about Australia, its environment, its space, its oceans, are on the front line of climate change. Of course, other places are really suffering as well, and I don't want to diminish that, but that's one of my own deep personal concerns, that if we don't crack on and, and limit warming to the something close to the Paris Agreement's limit of one and a half degrees, then we're going to see systems unravel and collapse that people really like and love. It won't just be here, it'll be in many places. I know that there are a lot of right-minded people in Australia, so it would be lovely to turn that around. And when you have so much of this natural energy on your doorstep, I mean the sunlight, not the gas, which is the other thing that's being used at the moment, it would be lovely to turn it around. And just on a side note, I always thought of these deserted areas. One feels that almost they're always there, but of course that is not necessarily the natural condition in Australia. Well, look, Australia has got a massively diverse set of ecosystems, marine and terrestrial. We have deserts, which are beautiful. We have some of the richest tropical rainforests there is in biological terms on the planet. We have amazing temperate, tall forests on both sides of the continent and the southern part, Tasmania. And we have flower, floristic biodiversity, which is one of the greatest on the planet. So there's massively diverse systems here. It's not just 
desert. Our oceans are numerous parts on the World Heritage List. Our Great Barrier Reef is very well known internationally, but we have also World Heritage Sites on the West Coast at Ningaloo, Shark Bay. These are world-class places, and they're all on the front line of climate change. They really are, the way that other countries' special places are as well. And speaking of the natural world, another thing that we're thinking a lot now about is we're living in the century of the city. We're living in a decade of transformation. Cities are the main drivers of creativity and innovation and consume 75% of the world's natural resources and global carbon dioxide emissions, I believe is about 70% coming out of cities. So what do you think the cities of the future are going to look like in terms of energy, transport, resource and waste management? food pollution? That's a good question. The big question is what should they look like as opposed to what might they look like? You see a lot of city developments going on around the world and you think, well, gosh, this is a five degree world we're building here. This is a world where it's immensely carbon intensive, huge amounts of emissions going up. And then the way they're being built is that they become concentrators of heat. We're going to be experiencing more and more extreme temperatures. Cities are going to be on the front line of that with heat extremes affecting human health, livability, whether or not you can even work outside during the day. Those are going to be big issues city design and development needs to address. And I think there's a lot of thinking going on in this area about how cities can become energy positive, produce the energy that they need internally from renewable and other sources without producing emissions, how to make cities' transport systems more sustainable by focusing on public transport, corridors that are denser than others in order to enable people to live and close to where they work and so on. These, I think, are well-known ideas years, actually, and well-published and well-assessed. We, we have one of the leading city researchers on the planet here, Professor Peter Newman, who is an IPCC convening lead author now for, I guess, the second or third time. And he's been proselytizing about this for decades. He was one of my professors, actually, and helped to get me into the game. But I think there's enough thinking. There isn't enough real action. And of course, as with anything in this big world, there's positive stories as well, right? So there's cities that are really trying to do the right thing. There's there's whole research programs in China looking at carbon-free cities and how to make cities more sustainable and livable, and there are in other parts of the world. But you still see, if you're looking, for example, at the COVID responses of governments, they've often focused on carbon-intensive transport options, cities and cities, freeways, big developments, without focusing on how to make the cities livable and sustainable. So I'm seeing a big gap there, and I think that's going to be one of the things that will ultimately be coming out of the next IPCC report that there's positive signs, but there's huge gap between what the cities should be doing and what they are doing. And speaking of the IPCC report, you have lead authors on that from Climate Analytics. I don't know if you can discuss it because it's coming out very soon. So well, look, yes. I mean, we have a couple of scientists who have been appointed as lead authors in the forthcoming IPCC Working Group 2 report. This is on impacts. And actually, as we speak, that's in the last 48 hours, perhaps, of its approval. So I definitely can't speak about that. But I think everyone who's following this would know that it's not going to have a lot of good news, actually. The impact's going to be larger and harder than we saw in the previous reports. I think this you can see and read into the scientific literature. So I, th I think it's a, a very, very important report coming out in a matter of days. And you're speaking about targets and what the Climate Analytics Tracker does very well is lay out our rankings by country. And to help us understand how 68 countries are, we're on a 1.5 degree pathway, how, how close are we? I'm surprised when I rank or rate certain countries to see who were doing a better job. Some of those statistics are, are surprising or illuminating. 
It's a really good question because it is a complicated area and there's two big things that countries need to do if they're a developed country. They need to reduce their emissions to a pathway that's close to the Paris Agreement pathway for that country, their own domestic emissions, and they need to be providing climate finance to other countries to help them get on the right pathway. So for developed countries, there's two things we need to assess. And then there's a question of the country's targets. They might make a target, how good or bad is that? And are they getting close to implementing that target? So that's more dimensions. For a country like Morocco, it's not a country that should be providing climate finance. So we would look at its target. Is that close to where it needs to be for such a country, taking into account its history and so on? And are its policies matching that target or where that, where, where that target need, where the country's emissions need to be? So for countries like Morocco, then they do have policies and targets which get close to where they would need to be to meet the Paris Agreement's commitments. For Germany, it's not all bad and because there's very positive movement on their target. It's not quite Paris compatible. They need to improve that, but it's getting close. Their current policies are still way off. They have a new government and that's promised to close that gap. So I hope that in a few months' time, the Climate Action Tracker can upgrade that. But then on the other side of the question, is Germany putting enough climate finance on the table for developing countries to act, it's not so great. But it's not so bad either, but it's not good enough to get a high ranking. So that's the complication here that you need to look at the whole picture. And you can find a country that might be doing really well on, say, reducing its domestic emissions. Look at the UK, right? It's got probably one of the few developed countries that is very close in terms of its promise for 2030 and 2035 to the Paris Agreement pathway. So it gets a positive ranking there. But then it's not doing enough on climate finance. So what we've tried to do with the Climate Action Tracker, and you can discuss whether it's the right way to do it, is weight those, right? So there's a judgment. There's no like physics behind adding these numbers up and coming up with a magic rating. It's a contested space, and we hope that we've done it the right way. We've tested many different options, so we know it's quite stable, but I'm quite comfortable with the ratings we give countries. Some countries are not happy with their ratings, of course, and they talk to us. I, I don't really want to go into who they are, but the countries are not shy about coming to us, and we engage them in detail, and in a lot of detail, actually, in some cases, to try and understand, have we got the numbers right? Have we really understood the country's context properly? And then reflect on that and then update our assessment if we need to. It really gives a lot of clarity, too, when you see the correlation between certain carbon taxes and when they're relaxed or when they're imposed and how that correlates. As you've seen in Australia, you can see numbers spiking when certain regulations are relaxed. Tell us about the international energy agencies, the net zero emission scenario. How can we get there? Well, I think it's very interesting that the IEA has actually done a net zero pathway. I remember going to the International Energy Agency in the middle 1990s with the Greenpeace fossil free energy scenario. And I remember there was not, a, let's say, a very happy reaction to this. It was getting towards net zero probably by the end of the century, based on state-of-the-art modelling at that time. And since that time, I've seen the International Energy Agency progressively move to try and understand the climate change issue, and then to try and make its analyses more and more relevant to policy. 
So that's been, I would say, led very much by its now director, Fatih Birol, who was then the chief economist for many years. And I think he has really pushed the International Energy Agency analysts to really look at what governments are proposing to do and work out how they can do it. And I think that's where the net zero comes from. So there are criticisms one can make of the IEA's net zero report, but the bigger picture is that it really is a groundbreaking report. It shows for the first time from an official energy agency point of view that it's possible to get to net zero and that it has the benefits which many modelers have been talking about and and demonstrating for years. So I think it's quite a breakthrough and I think it really offers some hope that the International Energy Agency will continue to be very active in this space. I think it has a big impact on industry and it has a big impact on many governments. So I think that's positive. And of course, there are many details one can discuss in the the net zero pathway of the IEA. But I think the biggest story is it's quite positive. And I want to go back to this meeting our target or going towards 1.5. I mean, how realistically where we are now, where are we going? Well, look, getting to limit warming to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial is going to be a very tightly run game, right? And I think that's been acknowledged for years and years. I, I, I don't know who first coined that term. I have a feeling it was John Schellhuber, but a very tightly run game to limit warming to safe levels. And so the one and a half degree issue is, is very acute. We know now that if we don't limit warming to that level or close to it, we run the risk of really serious damages to natural systems and to a lot of vulnerable countries and their territorial integrity is at risk and so on. So I I think it's going to be very, very close. We know from the physics of it that if we got onto an emission pathway, which involves a 50% reduction in emissions by 2030 and getting carbon dioxide emissions to net zero by 2050, then we would limit warming very, very close to one and a half degrees, right? So the big question now is, will we do it? Will the world actually make those emission reductions? And that's really the game that we're in now is we came out of Glasgow with very modest improvement in ambition. I think the emission gap might have been closed by around 15%, if I remember our numbers correctly, a long way to go. So that's why there's a lot of focus this year and next year on getting countries to step up their actual ambition levels and their action levels. So I think we're still in in the game to limit warming to one and a half degrees, but it's going to be very, very tight. It always was tight. So I think that's a really big challenge for everyone now is to really make sure that governments and their industries get behind this target. Exactly. And and how can public-private partnerships help us get there? What are some examples of interesting developments or things already underway that can help accelerate the progress in comparison if governments are just acting alone? You know, it's an interesting question, and it's quite a complex space, actually. And so my answer is going to reflect the personal preference rather than a kind of analytical evaluation of which private-public partnerships will have the potential to work the best. For my taste, the thing that's really interesting and could be a real game-changer is the mobilisation of private capital on a decarbonisation pathway. There's been a lot of talk about this over the years, but it's beginning to gain momentum and we're seeing it in different places. We're seeing it in, for example, the proposal to help South Africa phase out its coal plant by basically buying the coal plant out 
we're seeing discussions in Indonesia in the same direction, where private capital is coming in, supported by public capital, to actually bring about the big switch. We have an issue in Australia now where we have private sector venture capitalists coming in and saying, look, look, we can buy out Australia's biggest utility, emitting 8% of the country's emissions, and we could get it to net zero basically by 2035 and reduce power costs for the eastern coast of Australia at the same time. That is a new development. And it's a very important one because it basically turns the issue from being an adversarial one into one where capital is out to make money. And I think first the modelers who model this what will be needed to make this transition pointed this out perhaps 10 years or so ago but now the market economists are on the case basically this is a very very big economic opportunity nearly everywhere it's one of the biggest opportunities that you'll have to invest in and make this transition it can be profitable for corporations and it can be beneficial for employment that doesn't mean that the issues of just transition are not very important because if capital does it the way that it wants to do it then almost always workers will suffer. So that needs to be an area of very solid engagement by government to make sure that just transition arrangements are made so that workforces can effectively transition without being left behind. You mentioned net zero targets. What makes a good net zero target? And there are a lot of different solutions around that too. And I don't know what your feelings are on carbon capture and storage, but what is your ideal scenario? Well, look, net zero is a big idea. It's a big thing. And unfortunately, what's growing up is many ways to look like you're doing net zero when you're not. So in, in the ideal world, getting to net zero means essentially reducing your emissions. And then where you have residual emissions left, it means you may need to have negative emissions. So for example, it's relatively easy to decarbonize the power sector completely, and you could do it quickly and cheaply in most places. But you're always going to be left with some level of emissions from agriculture, right? From whether it's enteric fermentation from ruminants, from cows, or whether it is emissions from grain production, very difficult to get rid of. So to get to net zero greenhouse gas emissions, you're going to have to have negative emissions. And those negative emissions can be real. They can be technological. We can use biomass, carbon capture and storage at appropriate scale, not too much. Otherwise, you will cause damage to ecosystems. You can plant trees, which are going to be beneficial with store carbon at a reasonable scale and other technologies. So let's say the standard approach there would be to do real things that really reduce emissions. Where it gets complicated is where countries and or countries start to talk about using offsets and often offsets at very large scale. And the problem with the carbon market, the voluntary carbon market offset system is that often the emission generated do not reflect real additional and verifiable emission reductions. So often we see that claimed reductions in offset markets from things like avoided deforestation. So you have a reference case that says, well, this deforestation would have happened. Now we stop and we got a credit for it. In other words, it's not a real emission reduction. It's basically a fake system. Um, and this is becoming a really serious issue at scale. And that's something that I think that governments really need to look at. I know that in Australia, the Australia Institute's here has looked at the three main methods that have been deployed by the government and none of them actually work in general they don't work this is an extreme like in member case because there are other countries that have methods 
that do work to some extent. So the bottom line is that for offsets, they probably shouldn't be a very big part of a net zero pathway. The mantra for offsets should be use offsets for the last percentage points of reductions you can't do any other way. So that, that's one framing to bring to it. I think thinking about corporates and net zero, it turns out that it's more complicated for corporates to get to net zero in a sense than government. And so it becomes a trickier issue to look at. But in general, corporates could take the same kind of actions to clean up their own emissions and their supply chain. And as long as they avoid offsets, except for the last part, that will be positive. Each company will have its own challenges defining that. One thing I worry about might be paradoxical, but if you hear companies say, oh, I'm going to be net zero by 2025 or 2030, you need to be skeptical. I'm not saying you need to, to say these guys are doing something bad deliberately. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that you need to look at whether or not it's really realistic for a company to do that or whether they are planning to do that by buying offsets. So I think some companies have really had an epiphany and said, listen, we need to get to net zero as fast as we can. Can. And these advisors have told us one way to do it is by offsets, right? And they and they do that in good faith. And then they slowly begin to discover that isn't really going to work. Others, uh, notably in the oil and gas sector, will be using that as their core business offsets without touching their core business model. And that is another big problem out there. So the short answer to your net zero question is we need to look at the details of what governments and companies are proposing to understand whether or not this is really something that is going to work. The Climate Action Tracker is beginning to get methodologies for this. We have already produced a guide to what a country might do to have a good net zero target. And you'll see many of the points I mentioned there. We're looking at the corporate sector as well. But as I say, it's a more complicated system. There are many different types of companies with all sorts of different challenges to get there. So that's a bit of a harder problem to solve, but one that I'm confident we will. Yeah, it was a way to delay cutting out the behavior that, that needs to change. And just talking about five big economies, big countries, China, US, the EU, India, Russia, how are those countries doing and how, how could they be doing better? Well, Russia's terrible. There's no way. We're talking now at the day when you know, Russia has invaded the Ukraine. Its climate policies are just terrible. There's no, there's no way out of it. So the other countries are more serious. You mentioned the US, China, European Union. Each of them have their own challenges. I think if I start with China, it's a country that has taken climate change seriously for a very long time at the scientific and policy level. It has set targets which we don't believe are ambitious enough, particularly on coal. In the short run, it's a net zero goal for 2060, which is and will be very ambitious for China to achieve. And I know that their scientific and technical community is working hard on how they would do it. But in the short run for the critical 2030 emission levels, I'm worried that China is not doing enough in particular to take coal out of the system fast enough. So there's a lot of positive things going in China, but on the other side, coal is a big problem. And I know that the president of China, Xi Jinping, has made strong statements about the need to deal with this, but we don't yet see this in an emission pathway that's coming out of China. So I think that's going to be a really big issue the next few years to see whether China is able to bring this sector under control in emission terms, because the numbers are big and they affect the rest of us quite a lot. The Biden administration has a lot of ambition 
but it has, with many things, not yet put those ambitions into play, into practice. So I guess those of us who are watching this space are beginning to get concerned that the Biden administration is going too slow introducing the measures that they've talked about that were very positively received. So there's also mounting concern there that there's a lot of delays in getting action. So I think that's an issue. If they move in the direction that they promised, the country would still be some way away from a one and a half degree pathway, but it would be getting closer. So it would be very positive. The European Union has been a global leader on climate action for a long time. In its own way, it's a big and complicated thing. The European Union 27 member states was 28 a little while ago. And that means it's necessarily slow, but it's got very big ambitions. And those ambitions are very important because they overflow into other countries. And the technological developments, the policies of the European Union impact what other countries are doing in a positive way. And they could even begin to change the energy trajectory of an entire region. So for example, everyone's talking about hydrogen and the Europeans are as well. And I think there's a big prospect for Europe being able to import hydrogen from North Africa. So I think that's something that could be a game changer for the North African and near Middle Eastern regions, because um, being able to export energy like that is a big source of economic potential for regions that are really not doing very well economically. So I think there's potential positives there as well. And that depends very much on how the European Union really cracks on and gets its policies in place. I, I think if there is going to be a silver lining out of this whole catastrophe underway now in Europe with the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, maybe it is that Europe really gets on and gets its act together on getting out of gas and bringing in green hydrogen for those applications where you need that kind of fuel. I think that could be a positive thing globally because it will lead to energy markets beginning to switch. And while I'm thinking about that, I mean, very interesting development in the last weeks here globally actually is one of the biggest Japanese utilities calling now for tenders for, for a large amount of green hydrogen, more or less green hydrogen. I haven't read the fine print. So that's the kind of dynamics that are beginning to unfold that could be very positive. Yes, it's good to see that. And as you say, with large entities like the EU, it can put pressure on other countries and imposition of carbon tariffs and these kind of things that help move the needle in the direction it needs to go. Could you go into a little bit about global collaboration and where we need to be moving on that? Yeah, it's a good question. I guess one of the earliest understandings of the whole community working on this issue is that there had to be global cooperation to solve the climate change problem, that without it, no single country could change the trajectory of climate change. And I think that basic truth remains the same. But how you operationalize that truth has got more complicated, richer, and maybe even better. We have the Paris Agreement, countries fall under that umbrella. But the big question now is how do we get enough countries to move fast enough? So I think for some time, one of the areas of international cooperation that will probably need to be focused on is the development of smaller groups of countries who are focused on a sector that matters. So it could be lots of hydrogen partnerships forming, but you can also think about electric vehicle partnerships, about clean ammonia, clean steel, green steel partnerships. So I think that there are talks about forming up those kinds of partnerships, which would be groups of countries who become front runners 
governance on these kinds of technological transitions. Why would front running be interesting? Because history tends to show that front runners get an advantage in a market. So if you're a front runner, you're in the market first. If you're successful, you'll stay there in the market. You'll have an oversized market share. So I think that would be a motivation for countries to really engage with these kinds of partnerships. I think the bigger political partnerships of the Paris Agreement and regional groupings are really important, but I, I'm really seeing the need now for some visible driven partnerships that move individual sectors faster than they're moving at present. And I know there's several governments thinking about those sort of partnerships. They will be at different levels, but involving two or three or up to 20 countries. But I think these could be a really important part of the international cooperation space. And Climate Analytics also has a new South Asia office. Uh, this is yeah. very important. Yeah, tell us about what you're doing there. Well, developing country offices in West Africa and in South Asia are very much focused on adaptation and resilience and loss and damage. So one of the key focal points of the South Asian office is helping advise governments in the region how to adapt to climate change, how to make their agricultural systems, infrastructure more resilient and able to cope with the climate changes that are happening. It's not that mitigation is unimportant. In fact, we are working on different elements of mitigation in these countries, but in general, these countries are often on the front line of really harsh climate impacts. So the focus of our office is very much on building up the capacity of countries to identify what their adaptation challenges are, work out what it costs, and find the international climate finance to pay for that. So that's really the motivation for our work in the region. And the other thing I should say is that the South Asian office is headed by one of our leading experts on least developed countries. Manjit Dakal is a very important person in the least developed country grouping because he coordinates a lot of the science and policy input for the political level chairs of that group and helps along with other organizations that we cooperate with, such as the Institute for International Development and Development in London, to actually provide the capacity for this group of countries to make an impact on the international climate space and to help them secure the resources they need across the multiple needs that they have. And that's really the sort of work that is being led also from the South Asian office. We have colleagues in Kathmandu, in Bhutan, and in Pakistan. And I know that you're very supportive of you know, young climate activists, someone who's been committed to this fight for a long time, and you've given expert evidence for young people's cases. Just tell us your advice for them, but tell us a little bit about that process. Oh, well, I, I get very excited about young people coming into the climate space and also young scientists coming into the climate world. So it, it's something that is really exciting to work with and to help new people engage with the climate change issue. I mean, not always are they young. I mean, you've got also old people who sort of farmers who say, oh, look, I, I never believed in climate change, but now it's a mess. Can you help? So there's that as well. And But it's great to work with young people and young scientists, particularly to help them become empowered to take part in what is the most important issue that we face right now. And as a career, if you're in a science and policy space, it's hard to find a better one because it's such a rich area. If you get bored with something, then there's 10 or 20 other areas in the same field you could look at that could take up five or 10 years of very active interest and work. So it's a great space to be in. It's also that young people are really beginning to panic about the climate change problem. And that's 
something that is understandable and real. And I think that for my generation who have been involved, it's very important not to underplay the seriousness of it because it is extremely serious. But it's also important to empower younger people to see the potential to solve the problem. It's yes, we can. And so always in life, in professional life or personal life, things can be difficult, but there always can be options. And I think it's just important that in working with younger colleagues that one leaves the feeling, well, yes, that was a tough problem and it's really bad, but I think we can see a way through it and we can see a way of actually going further and changing that outcome and doing better. And I think that sort of positivity is something you see from many people. Look look at Christiana Figueres. She's Mrs. Positive. And it's really essential to create that feeling that we can really do this. And I truly believe we can. We're at a really big turning point in history. And I think all the signs are is if we can really line up everything in the right way, then we can see a big transition happening, hopefully faster than we imagined. Yes, I definitely do believe so. And I also want to say we have, as you say, we have the technologies now. I sometimes feel people are looking for a silver bullet of new technology that will solve. But I want us to work right now and not prey on the magic wand solution coming down the line. That's a good point. How we would get to net zero emissions by 2050, for example, I'm talking about the energy system. I think we can see everything in sight. We might not be able to see all of the detailed engineering solutions because that's the nature of engineering, but we can see they are solvable and we can see we have most of the, or nearly all of the technological options to get to net zero. And it's also important to remember, as, as you say, there is no magic bullet. There's many things that need to be deployed to get this problem of getting emissions down under control. So multiple sectors, multiple technologies. Some will work, many might not, but they all need to be pushed until we we know that they're going to work or not. And they might not work because of market reasons, not just technological. So that's something we have to learn as we go. But the important thing is to know that we can get there. We will need to be considering technologies that are difficult in the future, but we don't need them to get to net zero from the energy system in the next decades. What are your reflections on the future, important life lessons, your reflections on the beauty and the wonder of the natural world, and what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? Look, I think the strongest message that someone can give from my perspective is you really need to stick at it. You need to really be prepared to stick it at solving this problem because every now and then something will happen that you will think, oh, that was a real mess. And you need to get out of that and look forward and think about, well, let's look at how we can rebuild momentum, how we can solve the problems down here in Australia, which for many people seem impossible. But on the other hand, the potential is to go fast anywhere else on the planet. So it's really a message about focus, about positive positivity about finding your place where is the place that you feel best that you make your difference and working on it and being prepared if that doesn't work to change and try something different it's a, it's a lesson that anyone of my age I think would give to anyone of a younger age are looking for their direction in the future that you've got to be prepared to dig in you've got to be prepared to be flexible as well and I think that what's at stake is the whole integrity of our planet we've known in the scientific community for a very long time that the natural systems of the planet are going to be the first and hardest affected in most cases by climate change and we're already seeing our coral reef systems unravel we're seeing the high arctic boreal ecosystems of the world unraveling we're seeing problems begin to encroach into our tropical forests due to droughting heat and so on we're seeing species go extinct. So this can be limited. We can, within our lifetime, see global warming halted and these problems begin to stabilize. And if successful, we'll reduce warming from peak levels, hopefully around 1.5 degrees, and begin to see the systems begin to recover. We can really imagine that happening.
Well, thank you so much for the care that you're shown to the planet. Thank you, Bill Hare and Climate Analytics for helping us understand where we are on a global and national level, providing scientific knowledge and state-of-the-art solutions so that we might meet our goals and avoid the worst of climate change impacts. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast. Thank you. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Marley Hinchberger. Digital media coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.